I'll keep that open before you as we prepare to look at God's word. Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear your word. We pray that you would give us hearts to receive it. And perhaps what we find most challenging, the will to put it into practice. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Growing up, my parents always taught me to fear the ocean. I'm not sure if my parents are the only ones. I'm sure they're probably not. What does that mean, to fear the ocean? Well, if you've ever been to the beach, when it's a particularly uh, crashing surf, or if you've been out in the open water, in swells, I've done a bit of sailing, and when you're out, even in two-meter swells, it can feel pretty big. There you get a sense of the power of the ocean. It is a force to be feared. To fear the ocean doesn't just mean to be afraid of it. It means to respect it, to understand yourself in respect to it, to understand yourself in relation to it, that you cannot subdue it, that you cannot stop it, and that if not approached rightly, you're in grave danger. And in the passage before us this evening, we see God presented in a similar light. We get a sense of this fundamental aspect of God's character, that as the perfectly holy God of all existence, He is all-powerful. He cannot be subdued, he cannot be stopped, and if not approached rightly, we're in grave danger. But, as we will see in Joshua chapter 2, if we do approach God rightly, if we approach the majestic God of all creation rightly, he becomes a delight to us, a delight to us. So let's have a look at the passage and see what approaching God rightly looks like. It's a well-known passage. A story about two men and a lady. As we saw last week, Israel are about to enter the land of Canaan. You may recall, there's the Jordan River. They've already made it into part of the land of Canaan. They're on the east side of the Jordan River. They're yet to cross the Jordan and then take over the bulk of the land. And for Israel, this is a military campaign, primarily for them. And so before they undertake it, Joshua wisely does some reconnaissance of the area and he sends two spies into Canaan with instructions scout the land and especially Jericho why Jericho well there are probably a couple of reasons for this as you can see from the map Jericho is geographically closest to where they are at the Jordan Gilead there is a region Jericho was the city but it's not just the closest city it's also it was big it was fortified Jericho would prove the litmus test for the rest of Israel's campaign into the land of Canaan, much as it did 40 years earlier, with disastrous results. And so the spies enter the city, and pretty much straight away, we're told, they end up at the house of a woman named Rahab. And we're told Rahab is a prostitute. Now this raises the inevitable question, what are they doing at the house of a prostitute? Maybe they have morally questionable motives for being there. Maybe it's strategic because of where Rahab's house is situated. The short answer is, we're not told. The narrative does not dwell on this detail. That's where the spies go, that's where the spies stay. Now, the the espionage skills of the spies, they appear to be somewhat less than 
exemplary. No sooner have they arrived than word gets back to the king of Jericho that very day. Verse 2 we read, Look, some of the Israelite men have come here tonight to investigate the land. And so the king sends men to Rahab with a message. Well, it's not really a message, it's a command, isn't it? It's the order of her, of her city's leader. Bring out the men who are with you. They're spies. They're here to undermine us. And we get a sense here of the sovereign hand of God over events, of the way he can uniquely redeem the actions of flawed people and use them for his purposes. The spies go to the house of a prostitute. But Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, hides these foreign spies. And then she spins another version of events for the Jericho men who have come to find them. Verse 4, yes, the men did come to me, but I didn't know where they were from. At nightfall, when the gate was about to close, the men went out, and I don't know where they were going. Chase after them quickly, and you can catch up with them. The men take Rahab at her word. They head out of the city on what we know is going to be a vain search of the men because we're told that she has taken them and hidden them. And once the men leave the city of Jericho, the gates are shut. The men are locked inside. Imagine reading this for the first time as an Israelite. You'd be thinking, how are they going to get out? The writer pauses. He will return to that. But again, a bit like the moral question of the spies being in the house of a prostitute in the first place, you'll notice here that the rightness or wrongness of Rahab's lie is similarly not dwelt on. It seems to be the writer's way of indicating what we as readers should and should not be concerned about primarily. In this case, we actually shouldn't be overly concerned with picky ethical dilemmas. It's also the writer's way of indicating that what Rahab is about to say is far more important. So important that all other matters, they must be placed on the back burner. So what is Rahab's truth? Verse 8. Before the men fell asleep, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og the two Amorite kings you completely destroyed across the Jordan. When we heard this, we lost heart, and everyone's courage failed because of you, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. What's Rahab's truth? What does she know? Well, it turns out she knows quite a bit, doesn't she? She knows about the people group of Israel. But more than that, she knows about Israel's God, the Lord. Yahweh. She knows of the Lord's might, His majesty. She knows that it's the Lord who dried up the waters of the Red Sea some 40 years earlier. It's the Lord who orchestrated the destruction of the Amorite kings east of the Jordan. And so we see there in verse 11, Rahab declares that the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. This is remarkable. As a Canaanite woman, she lives in a polytheistic culture. Multiple gods. And here she seems to assume that the Lord is the only 
functioning God in heaven and upon earth. That is a faith statement. That is a faith statement unique to the people of Israel. And here's a woman, a pagan, with an Israelite confession on her lips. What is this awareness and conviction of the Lord's might and majesty? What does it do in Rahab? What does it produce? It leads her to seek the mercy of the Lord, doesn't it? Verse 12. Now please swear to me by the Lord that you will also show kindness to my family because I show kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father, mother, brothers, sisters and all who belong to them and save us from death. And here's where we start to see the evidence of Rahab's faith. Rahab amazingly not only trembles before the terror of the Lord but senses in this almighty, all-majestic God, that there might also be mercy. And so she falls on God's mercy, or at least on the possibility of God's mercy. See, at this stage, she's not sure. It's a hunch, a desperate hunch. She doesn't know. But recognizing God's might, recognizing God's majesty, recognizing the sheer unstoppability of his judgment power, she does what she can. She hides and harbors the spies of Israel, the representatives of the Lord. And she places her life and the lives of her loved ones in their hands, trusting that that is placing them in the Lord's hands. And she is shown mercy as a consequence, we're told. The men agree to spare her, provided she doesn't report their mission. Our lives for your lives, they say. There are other conditions as well, though. A scarlet cord needs to be tied on the window to identify the house. Anyone Rahab once saved must be in the house with her when the moment comes. These are the details of her deliverance. And the details of her deliverance, they bring to mind the details of another deliverance in Israel's relatively recent history, only a generation before. They bring to mind the exodus out of Egypt. Their God also brought about simultaneous judgment and redemption. For those not under the house protection of the Lamb's blood, the Lamb's blood that was painted on the door frames of the houses in which they lived, for those not under that protection, which meant virtually all the Egyptians, that meant when the arrival of God's angel came, that meant judgment. That meant the death of the house's firstborn. But for those under the house protection of the Lamb's blood, the arrival of God's angel meant redemption. Redemption from slavery in Egypt. In such a way, God delivered his people from that circumstance. And in the same moment, he judged Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's long-standing sin of subjugation. And in such a way, the Lord would work, some 40 plus years later, to deliver Rahab and those in her household from his righteous judgment. A scarlet cord. Everyone safely in the house. These are the particulars of Rahab's salvation. And they're not up for negotiation. Because God being who he is, almighty and all holy, and Rahab being who she is, like the rest of us, not almighty, certainly not all holy, God is the only one who can dictate the terms of salvation. They're on his terms. But Rahab agrees to this. Let it be as you say, she says to the spies 
who in this case, in this moment, are functioning really as spokespeople of the Lord. And then she helps them escape out the window, down the city wall, into the countryside where they hide for three days, eventually making their way back to Joshua, where they report their findings. And we see in the final verse of the passage, they told Joshua, the Lord has handed over the entire land to us. Everyone who lives in the land is also panicking because of us. What a contrast. What a contrast. The last time the Israelites explored into Jericho, in Numbers 13, some 40 years earlier, an expedition group was also sent. And they saw how intimidating the city and how intimidating the inhabitants of Jericho were. And when they came back, they said, we can't do it. And as a, on the basis of that report, it was Israel who became completely fearful. It was Israel who were all panicking. And they ended up bailing, bailing on the Lord's promises. But this time, the spies' report has the opposite effect, doesn't it? It gives the Israelites great assurance that the Lord will give them the land as promised. And that's where the account ends. That's not where its, its truth ends, not where its relevance ends. And there are several truths arriving, arising from this passage. And I want to highlight three of them. Three truths. The first is the mercy of God. The mercy of God. And we see that the mercy of God is the source of salvation. And maybe to many of us in, that, in this room, that that's, has an obvious sound to it. But what do I mean by that? How do we see that in particular arising from Joshua 2? Well, in this passage, the looming conquest we see two aspects of God's character on display, his majesty and his mercy. His majesty is undeniable. But more than that, and particularly in this passage, we see that his mercy is delightful. In the face of God's righteous judgment of Jericho, Rahab humbly places her faith in the mercy of this all-powerful God. She makes the spies promise to spare her and her family, and God honors that promise. If you read ahead to the taking of Jericho, in chapter 6, you'll see that Rahab and her family are spared, just as God said they would be. And in Rahab's story, we see with great clarity the mercy of God and how the sovereign God himself is the source of their salvation. God provides the way for Rahab and her family to be spared. He provides the sure sign. He provides the safe house. And in Jesus' earthly life and ministry, and in his death on our behalf, we see with even greater clarity the mercy of God. Not just to one person, not just to one family, not just to one group of people, but to all people. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, he says in Ephesians chapter 2, We were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses, dead in sin. You are saved by grace. And so Rahab's experience is the experience of all who are shown mercy by God. And in the history of God's dealing with humankind and the way his salvation works out, this has particular delight for those who are not born of the Jewish race. Because in Joshua 2, that's where we are in what we might call salvation history. As the Apostle Peter writes to the non-Jewish believers in the first century, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
Have you received God's mercy? You can receive God's mercy. Rahab herself highlights this powerfully. The mercy of God extends even to Rahab, a Canaanite living in the darkness of of idolatry, not worshipping the true and living God, a prostitute living a life completely opposite to how God has designed it to be lived. But in our human estimation of things, in our moral assessments of one another, we find it all too easy and all too natural, don't we, to come up with categories of more deserving and less deserving of our kindness, more deserving and less deserving perhaps of our mercy. If Rahab existed in our time and place, would we consider her within the bounds of our, of our societal mercy, let alone in the bounds of God's? The fact is, no one deserves mercy. That's what makes it mercy, isn't it? But nor is, should anyone be outside the bounds of mercy. That's also what makes it mercy. We struggle with this as human beings. But God does not. No one is outside the bounds of God's mercy. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, God's mercy is available. And like Rahab, mercy isn't dependent on our moral self-improvement. You'll notice Rahab isn't asked to clean up her life first before she's shown God's mercy. She only has to stay in the safe house that God has provided. So to us. God has made his righteousness before him available through Jesus. And remember, Rahab, she didn't know for certain whether God's mercy was available. But we do. We can look to the cross and we can know that to receive the mercy from God, all we need to do is trust in Jesus and what he has done. Which brings us to our second truth. The movement of faith. The movement of faith. And we see that the movement of faith is the means of salvation. If the source of Rahab's salvation is God himself and his mercy, well, Rahab's faith is the means, the the mechanism that God uses to bring her to that place of protection. And we see this at work in, in the activity of Rahab's faith. Faith is never just something conceptual. Faith is what you do with your life. And we like to put faith in the box of it. it. Faith is just what you think about. But no, faith is what you do with your life. Just knowing about God is not enough. And what we see in Rahab is someone moving from knowledge about God to trust in God. And how do we see that? By what she does with her life. Rahab takes what we might call concrete steps of faith. She protects the spies. She asks for mercy. She ties the scarlet cord. And when the invasion comes, she brings her family under her roof. She puts her faith into action. And again, in the New Testament, we see that this is not a truth that remains in Joshua 2. The Apostle James makes this connection between faith and action. In chapter 2 of his letter, James refers to the actions of Israel's forefather, Abraham, someone whose faith was demonstrated by his actions. And then a few verses later, in verse 25, he says this, And in the same way, 
wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out on a different route? Rahab is mentioned in the same category as Abraham, the man of God, the man of faith. True faith is active faith. It puts its money where its mouth is. How do you move from knowledge of God to trusting God? Or perhaps more pointedly, have you moved from knowledge of God to trusting God? I think a great danger for those of us who grow up in the church is that we think that staying in knowledge of God is the same as trusting God. Have you confessed with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord? Do you believe that God raised him from the dead? Does that reality shape your life choices? Does it cause you to put God and others before self, day by day, month by month, year by year? The movement of faith is the means of salvation. And faith is active. The final truth we see here is about the person of faith. We see that the person of faith is blessed. And that is the result of salvation. Faced with the reality of God's majesty, driven by the fear of his pending judgment, Rahab makes a choice. She seeks his mercy and she is spared. She is, in that initial moment, driven by fear. But of course, that can't be it. Faith in God can't begin and end simply in fear of him. Because in the end, that's not faith. It's certainly not biblical faith. It's merely self-preservation. Fleeing God's judgment and calling for his mercy, it might be the first steps of faith, but it can't be what fuels all subsequent steps. Because coming to God in faith doesn't just mean avoiding his judgment. It means something bigger than that. It means something better than that. It means coming to the one who alone makes life truly worthwhile. The author of life who alone can say definitively how our lives ought to be lived with him. The author of life who made us and who loves us. The mercy of God is delightful. And when we grasp that, we can respond to God's mercy with joy. And we can experience the unique peace and delight that comes from knowing we are no longer offside with our Creator. Instead, we can be not only onside with Him, we can be in loving relationship with Him, the God of the universe. And that He would give us His Holy Spirit so that we can know Him and become more like Him. What an experience for mere mortals, becoming more like God. Chapter 2 is one of several instances of faith in the book of Joshua. This weekend I was up in Katoomba with a few other guys from Minchinbury at Base Camp, the annual men's convention. The theme of Base Camp was a portrait of a man of faith. And the speaker, Paul Tripp, he reflected on many of these things from other parts of God's word. What does it mean to be a man of faith? What does it look like? Well, here we see a crystal clear portrait of a woman of faith. And Rahab might have started in fear, but I dare say she went on in joy. Because that is the true blessing of salvation. 
that awaits the person of faith. She didn't just avoid God's destruction of Jericho, she joined God's people. And by, by doing so, she became a receiver of the same promises that he'd made to them. Just a few chapters ahead in chapter 8, God's people renew their covenant with God. And it's made explicit who is receiving that. All the people in Israel who are receiving the blessings of land and God's presence with them. And it mentions the foreigners among them, who by this stage includes Rahab. And as we've seen in the New Testament, she's commended for her faith in James, in Hebrews. And we find her in the genealogy of Jesus himself. She got to inherit the land along with the people. She got to go on from that point to live life as her creator God intended. In knowledge of him. And we trust in joyful obedience to him. We can too. And I know that many of us, most of us, all of us perhaps, are in some way enjoying the blessings of that salvation. But if you have not yet put your faith in God, please do. Unlike Rahab, for whom it was not certain at the time that she, she made that plea for mercy, we can be certain. We can look at the cross. And in the person of Jesus, we see the undeniable majesty of God and the delightful mercy of God coming together. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God of all life. We thank you that you have given us life and that in Jesus, you give us new life. Thank you that you are all powerful and you use that power to show us mercy. And I pray that for each of us here, uh, you may work in our lives to help us, to bring us to faith in Jesus or to continue us on in faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Chris, for sharing with us from God's Word. But friends, we don't